0: I am really thrilled to be here this evening for this absolutely one-of-a-kind 5 by 15 event when we will be addressing with two extraordinary authorities some of the really big questions. We will be breaking down barriers and crossing boundaries, asking, how does literature nourish science? When does physics become poetry? As Carlo Ravelli writes, this is the nature of culture, an endless dialogue that enriches us by continuing to feed on experiences, knowledge, and above all, exchanges. So without further ado, let me introduce our fantastic panelists, Carlo Ravelli. And Neil Gaiman. Carlo is a theoretical physicist who has made significant contributions to the physics of space and time. He has worked in Italy and has joked that, like Copernicus, he was an undergraduate at Bologna and a graduate at Padua and the US, and is currently directing the quantum gravity research group of the Centre de Physique Theorique in Marseille, France. His books. Seven brief lessons on physics, reality is not what it seems and the order of time are international bestsellers which have been translated into 41 languages. Last year, he was included by the foreign policy magazine in the list of the 100 most influential global thinkers and no wonder, his imaginative rigor, his lively humor and his beautiful writing are inspiring He challenges us to think in new ways, and this kind of thinking is necessary, especially now, I dare say. Science is constantly learning something new, he wrote not long ago, and more often than not, such learning means jettisoning jettisoning wrong ideas. That is why science often clashes with common sense. Our intuition wants Earth to be flat and still and time to be the same everywhere. None of this is true, he writes. His new collection of essays has a wonderful title. There are places in the world where rules are less important than kindness. It's published by Alan Lane. And in March, Alan Lane will publish Helgoland, a book which aims to reframe how we think about quantum physics, making sense of the... quantum revolution, and if we're lucky we might get a little sneak preview tonight of that work and its ideas. Conversing with him is the wonderful Neil Gaiman, my old friend, one of literature's great polymaths. His books are published for children and adults and everywhere in between. He is the first author to have won both the Carnegie and Newbery medals for the same work a graveyard book a transatlantic triumph his work has been adapted for film television radio and is to me distinguished by its ability to adapt to these new forms while somehow always remaining itself i love the film of Coraline, released in 2009 as much as i love the wonderful 2002 book and that's a rare distinction American Gods and Good Omens have become major television series. And he is, of course, he has, of course, written two episodes of Doctor Who, including The Doctor's Wife, a particularly stunning episode, I think. He and I, I should say, collaborated some years ago because he is, like me, an admirer of the fantasy author Alan Garner. And I was delighted to include him in First Light, a 2016 celebration of Garner, which I edited and which was published by Unbound. This winter season, he has two new books out, as Daisy said, for children, the terrific Pirate Stew, created with his frequent collaborator, Chris Riddell and published by Bloomsbury. And there is also the Neil Gaiman Reader, the perfect introduction out for adults and published by Headline in the UK. And if we were um, live, I have to say, I would encourage you all to give a tremendous round of applause for these two extraordinary people writers, scientists, everything, but I know you are doing that virtually so welcome to both of you and I'm really really thrilled um, to be in this dialogue with you. I, I want to start um, by asking really how how you are and how you have been during, I know it's a complicated question, during these past remarkable and difficult um, eight months. Carlo can I turn to you?
1: Thank you. And thank you for this introduction, Um, flattering and embarrassing for me. Uh, uh, You're very kind. Uh, It's a a difficult question how I've been in this uh, this difficult period, because uh, uh, there's a sort of guilt for me answering. I see the disasters, I see the people dying. I see the, the, the sadness and the economical difficulties of many people. Uh, But personally, for me, it has not been hard. Uh, In fact, uh, I found myself in places where I was not supposed to be for a long time. I decided not to move because I think not traveling is a good idea. And uh, I stayed home a lot and uh, I didn't have direct economical weight uh, like many people had. And so it was a easy period for me, in fact, a nice period because staying, staying at home, reading, writing, it's a, it's my dream life in a sense. Um, I was afraid of dying, like many people. I mean, at some point I thought, well, I mean, I could die. This could be my my end. Um, so it has also been a moment of reflection of uh, of about mortality. I think for, for many people it has, we, I mean, we'll die and we know but we never think about that and this is this year I think we have talked about that more than usual Uh, we have been confronting the weakness of our society the fragility uh, that we didn't expect uh, but also the fragility of our life that we knew about but we didn't want to think about
0: absolutely and Neil how about you
2: Um, Well, I wound up by a series of, um, I was going to say mischances. It's not exactly mischances. But I have wound up spending the last nine months on the Isle of Skye in Western Scotland in my house here. Um, And while I... Normally, you know, I've had this house since 2005, and I normally get to come, work, have a great time, and then bop off and do whatever it is that I'm meant to be doing around the world. Um, I've never had nine months here just to walk the hills, um, walk the coast, uh, watch the change of light, watch the strange difference between... Uh, you know, June the 21st when I was out at 11 p.m. taking photographs of the sunset and now as I sit and work and I watch this small sun like a silver coin just sort of rising not very far and traveling not very far across the sky and then vanishing in a little blaze of pink and being gone. Um, and i become more and more obsessed with time and with stones. Um, and part of the, obs- the obsession was starting to grow anyway, because I was starting to realize that anywhere around here, that there are stones where there shouldn't just be stones, somebody put them there. And sometimes they put them there 500 years ago, and sometimes they put them there 4,000 years ago. And, uh, I've been talking to some archaeologists r- literally round the corner from where I'm living, who ha- now have evidence of 14,000 years of people turning up and leaving stones and chipping. And I, I think I'm probably going to, I'm in that, that weird place that I get into when I know that six months from now or five years from now, there is books or stories or something brewing. And all I know is that the part of my brain that makes up stories isn't quite letting the rest of me know what's going on, Um, but it seems to be a thing. And, And it seems to be very much so that's been, that's been wonderful. Everything else has been strangely terrible, except that I keep thinking that no work has been done and that time is being eaten and going through in, in some kind of weird speeded up mode. Um, but actually, an awful lot is getting done. So, uh, so there, so that's me. I think that
0: and I'm, I'm going to ask, I think we've all had our, um, we've all had to a greater or lesser degree, our perceptions of time altered in this period. But actually what Neil says um, now, Carlo, ma- makes me want to turn kind of right away to, to... Neil to me is kind of describing, I want to say almost a process of fermentation when artistic ideas start to bubble away without consciousness quite you've talked about in a way i'd say you're kind of almost slow start if i can put it that way as a scientist it seems to me that you spent a a lot of time finding yourself how is that how does that thinking process work for you in science when you're working towards an idea
1: um Ideas take long to appear, and uh, and I, I I I recognize Neil in what you're saying. This uh, the, the 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 long period in which ideas are sort of uh, floating in a space which is not uh, is sort of pre-born, but they are there already, but they are not uh, they are not realized. They are not. Uh, I mean inventing thing or writing something or or, or 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 getting an idea in science is different i mean there, there are many different ways in which things arrive of course uh, but uh um, i mean wh- one of the one of the articles i wrote the title is uh, ideas don't fall from you don't get them from the blue sky suddenly uh there is a long pre preparation because uh, i think uh, um doing something new is, is going in a place where we have not been but you don't just jump there it's just uh, the longer um the, the long staying near to problems questions contradictory things uh, half intuitions uh, and going around them over and over again uh, and slowly uh slowly they start to get some new order, some new some new um the creativity, I believe, is deeply, deeply rooted uh, in the large amount of things we know. And that's the way I, I think culture works. Uh, you, have to, you have to be able to forget everything, to break everything, to, to break the rules, to jump in new places, uh, but you cannot do that unless you have a, a deep knowledge uh, you build on something uh, otherwise you do some superficial things or wrong things or silly things um what, one of these things i i it's uh, you mentioned copernicus in uh, in uh in Italy, and what i was saying is, in my book, I, I ask, what, what did Copernicus find in Italy? Copernicus is the greatest revolutionary of all time. I mean, the, the, the name "revolution" comes from the title of his book. Uh, for him, it just meant the revolution of the of the planets around the sun, and then it came to mean a, a big change because his book was an incredible change. And I think that in, in Italy, what he found uh, it's uh, the, the spirit of the Italian Renaissance, which was let's change everything, everything new plus uh, this uh, centuries of stratified scientific knowledge uh, rooted back in ancient Greece and and, 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 and the Arabs, uh, uh, Ptolemy, Archimedes, uh, uh, and, and he could absorb all that. And it's a combination of the two things that allowed him to make this big jump. And he published a book 30 years later, for 30 years he talked about, he was in the same mood as Neil in his island, (laughs) playing around with an idea that slowly, slowly grows.
2: I love that line that you quote in the book um, from that time period, that uh, from the flowers of the past, we make the honey of today. And uh, the, the idea of honey of ideas coming from these all of these ancient flowers, it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's Petrarca, it's, a, it's, it's one of the great Italian poets of the of the late Middle Ages. He's one of the inventor of the language, of the Italian language, and uh, his poet was incredibly new compared to, to anything before, novel. Uh, and and yet, that's what he says, is you get to go to get the honey from the flowers of the past. But Neil, if I may, I'm, um, stones. You, you've been mm-hmm. looking and thinking about stones. And uh, uh, m- my first answer to Erica was about the fragility and, uh, and uh, the fleeting aspect of reality in which we're immersed. And stones are perhaps the most, the strongest metaphor of what could be not fleeting. Right, what remains. And in fact, you mentioned even what, 14,000 years ago? 14,000 years. Remarkable. Why did people move stone around? Why do our ancestors spend time moving? Maybe that's what we do, the same things. And maybe in the future, people will look at that. Why did you do that? Um, But stones are there. A stone is the most long-living thing we can imagine or we can think of. And yet, 14,000 years is long, but those stones will disappear at some point right? They're not forever either, they're for long. So I feel that uh, uh, that's the space in which we move, right? Between this uh, permanence that we try to uh, get attached to, stones and, uh, and and cathedrals and pyramids and, 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 and before, uh, and our, our even sense of identity of what we do. We write books hoping a little bit that it will last more than a few days. Uh, uh, But then on the other hand, uh, we know that uh, it's fighting against something we're gonna lose, right?
0: But it's funny when, Neil, when you mentioned stones too, I thought of something, this wonderful um, idea, the way that you put it um, in the order of time, Carlo, is, and I wrote it down, the world is not a collection of things it is a collection of events. The world is made up of networks of kisses, not of stones. <laughs> I think that's, it's such a, a, a wonderful image and a wonderful image for creativity too. But would you, could you say a little bit more about that since we've started on stones?
1: Well, if you think, if you think carefully about what a stone is, uh, um, if we look at it during our life, it's a very permanent thing, and if we look at it with a, with the eyes of an archaeologist it's a very permanent thing but suppose we look at it with the eyes of a of a of, of a star who lives for a billion years a stone is just a momentary aggregation of things that then dissolves because stones dissolve after a while so uh, a stone is uh, uh, with all its permanence is also very impermanent it's a, a it's, it, it it's it's a set of events that stay similar to itself a, a bit more than than usual and I think that uh, we understand better the the, uh, the 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 nature by thinking of these events uh, um, that interact with one another uh, and for a while, stay together, creating things and stones, rather than the other way around, thinking of nature as 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 a set of entities, a stone, a mountain, myself, uh, United Kingdom, uh, freedom, which are there, and uh, we relate to these things. I don't think the things are there. I think we are just the combination of these uh, uh, of 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 events, which are which are momentarily. Maybe maybe it's just a, maybe it's just this this year the, the pandemic that is making me so <laughs> thinking about fleeting aspect of reality. Um, of course, stones are very stable, and we like stable things. We love stable things because they give us a sense of uh, stability. Because we want to be stable, also we would like not to die.
2: I've been thinking a lot this year about um, one of your essays. In the physics book, um, where you talk about time as being, you know, Einstein writing a letter to the widow of a friend, just saying, "No, he's he's absolutely still alive. You guys are absolutely still together, just in a different time. It's not, it's not the past. It's all now," and that. Weirdly, I found probably not just the most hopeful and helpful thing and way of thinking about uh, what's been going on in the pandemic, but also a way of just thinking about people, Um, you know, trying to, trying to understand why these people would have built a stone circle here and a building next to it and another building over there and going, well, they're they're still here. They're just you know if I could if I could walk 5,000 years, I could I could sit with them and talk and as it is, I can at least look at the same kind of sunset that they were looking at in the same kind of sunrise and at least try and go, oh well, well of course you build this here because if you stand just here and you look over there, you have that hill that people could have lit a signal fire and people, and you can light your own signal fire and people can see you all the way down there. And you've covered just by being in this one tiny place, you've covered the entire island. Um, But you sort of have to, you have to be there and sort of imagine what it would be like just to walk 6,000 years into that place. It's this is incredible. wonderful. I
1: wish. I wish. I, I. I want to come to that island. I mean, it's. I hope we this vaccine vaccine get fast, and then I. I want to walk on this. Uh, um. Uh, look, I love what you say. Uh, let me put it in this way. Um. My my father died a couple of years ago. He was very old, so it was you know it was a right moment you're very old and you get to the end it was very serene and t- the end was a nice way of going away and uh, uh, I was not particularly devastated when this happened because I've been waiting for that and was it was the time so it was you know this is a step of life and then slowly um, I realized I keep thinking about him Somehow, the more time passes the more I think about him and there is a very concrete sense in which is very present in me I talk with him. He, I, I listen to what he would say to me. So, and I think that this is not uh, this is not a delusion or, or something vague. This is a very concrete. Namely, I believe that what we are as person, as people, it's very much uh, what we are in our network of relations and what we tell one another and the way we see one another. And even I think what the way we see about ourselves is largely um, our image reflected in the eyes of others. So our identity. Um, I mean, we are flesh and stuff, but there's, there's, we are much more than flesh and stuff. And the more, it's a lot. This uh, what we are for one for one another. So my father is for me there, very, very much there. And the people of fourteen thousand years ago are still with us, giving sign of us and uh, telling things to us. Um, that's the way I think about uh, about ourselves. I don't. Neil, in, in some of your books, I mean, I I, I, I read very, only recently American Gods, where the gods um, exist to the extent they are believed and adored, and uh, um, and I think it's a, a it's a wonderful story, of course, but it's also a a wonderful reflection of what what is it to be real, uh, and uh, I've took it not just as a marvelous storytelling, but also as um, as something which is telling us something about reality, Uh, not because we can make reality the way we want. Of course we cannot, it's just just experience of life. I mean, reality is very solid and you cannot go through a wall by not believing it. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, uh, we interact with the reality and we see it in the way we see through the fact that we, um, that we see in that way. So reality exists in the way we understand it, uh, including the gods, of course, uh, including the gods in which people believe and therefore they exist. That's what the gods are in, the, in, a, in, a, uh, uh, in a deep way. Um, so once again, uh, a stone is not an object out there just by itself that irrespectively of us exist through the... It's a a, a network in our reading of reality and in the way we talk to one another.
2: I like to think of gods as existing to the extent that people behave as if they exist and have power. Um, And it's that thing where you're talking about belief and saying, look, we have gods that we know nothing about. And we have gods that we have old statues of forgotten gods, they have no power. Um, We have other gods who, whether they exist or not, almost doesn't matter because you have millions, sometimes billions of human beings acting as if they do. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with you're dealing with reality and consensus reality. And of course, Carlo, I, I mean, the big question for you is, is what is real?
1: <laughs> I think that, well, look, my my, my, my forthcoming book is about quantum mechanics. Um, quantum mechanics is a mess because the best theory we have about reality and is the less uh, Less clear and and worse understood theory about about reality. Uh, if if you read in textbook, it's all about uh, you know what you observe and the observer and the observer affecting the system. So it's very confusing. Um, the 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 title of the book is Helgoland. Helgoland is this uh, island in the Northern Sea. It's a very small teeny island where um, quantum mechanics was conceived. By a 23 years old uh, uh, Werner Heisenberg, who went there um, because uh, because he was uh, suffering from allergy. The island has no uh, no trees, but also I believe because he was enamored by pirates, and the island was a was a, a hiding place of pirates. Uh, and uh, in, in in the northern countries, there is a famous pirate is called Tony Story Brook, something like that. I forgot. Um, and the young Heisenberg was the, the kid who was in love with this pirate. So he went to this island alone um, and he had this problem about physics. It's not clear how the atoms were were working. And uh, and uh, he spent some time alone in an island there um, walking. Um, the island has big rocks and doing calculations and reading Goethe. He was in love with Goethe. Um, and suddenly the calculations start to work and he start to understand something. And then one night, he has this incredible idea and it works, it works, it works after all this e- month and month and years of, of struggling and things started working. And he, in, at three o'clock in the night he is done and uh, it works. So his new way of doing calculation, that's the birth of quantum mechanics. That's the greatest scientific evolution ever. So at three o'clock of, at night, he, he just closes his notebooks, goes out in the night and there's this immense rock on, on the island. He climbs the rock, goes on top of the rock and uh, wait for the sun coming out from the, from the ocean, uh, thinking that he has seen something that nobody else has, uh, has seen. And that's quantum mechanics. And we're still using, uh, you know, to build this computer or to build nuclear powers uh, uh, or to build medical machines to look inside. that. We're still using the, the technique that this guy, this young kid invented uh, there. And the core of the technique is not thinking that he was thinking about atoms, electrons, not thinking that the electron is a little thing there, but thinking about how the atom, the electron interacts with what is outside. So how, how things interact with one another, not how things are. So, the question, this goes straight to your question, what is real, real is not what is there by itself, real is what affects something else. So, reality is, I think, that's my reading, that's the way I make sense of quantum mechanics. Um, Reality is the, is the network of the way things affect one another. Of course, including all sorts of things, including big things, complicated things, our brain, our thinking, our society, our collective deliriums, everything. Um, I, don't think there is a, I don't think there is a bottom line behind that, the final, I, I, physics for a while dreamed, okay, we, we, we have seen the end. The end is just a space with particle moving and nothing else. No, things are much more complicated than that.
2: That for me, I, I think was, I mean, that's what I love about all of your writing about science is it always comes back to people and people interacting with other people and people interacting with their world. And it's so easy to think about people as equations, physics as numbers and rules. And yet, the place where it all comes to life is the point where you start going, no, these are there are people interacting with their world who dreamed up these rules, who discovered these rules, who broke other rules or negotiated with other rules. You're I, I love you know, some of your your the 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 first essay in the book, um, where you're talking about Aristotle moving uh to Newton moving to Einstein and as if uh, you know and am saying it, it's not actually as if this year's physics came out and we threw away last year's physics or we threw away the the volume that we've been using for the previous 2,000 years and going actually this is all bullshit here is where we started really th- figuring it out and then oh no in the 1930s 1920s we I had to do it again and it's reissued. It feels so much more um, like a process of observation, continuous people observing, continuously people recording, communicating, interacting. And the feeling that good science is. It's all that you're always gonna have a guy who's had a brilliant vision sitting on a rock, looking out to see as the sun comes up going, I've figured out stuff that nobody else has done, but it is fundamentally communal because other people metaphorically built and directed that rock. And it is that rock that he's climbed. It is, you know, you cannot get to Newton or to Galileo without Aristotle. You cannot get to Einstein without his predecessors. Um, And they understood that and they are people and that peopleness is the place where it all comes alive for me.
0: And I was gonna say too, when Carla was talking about um, that atoms exist, and you can stop me if I am getting this wrong, but that all these things exist in relationship to each other. That to me also, when I think about your work, Neil, that's the heart of storytelling. Is Storytelling is about how people, events, they don't exist in vacuums. They interact with each, with each other. That's, that's the motor of every story.
2: It, it, it is, there is a sort of a, the what comes next and the why should we care. And, and why should we care always winds up at the end of the day coming down to human beings. Um, and, um, or to things that we have created that feel human enough or feel enough like us that we can recognize something of ourselves in what they do and how they behave. Um, but that for me is, I think, just the, the, the sheer delight of creating story is, and especially, I'm, I'm feeling that right now, especially feeling at the beginning of a story, feeling like, okay, there's, I have no idea who the human beings are in this story other than they cover a longer time span Um, than normal, and in order for the story to be real and work, none of them can be particularly long-lived. So now I have to figure out how to tell a story that covers 14,000 years with a lot of characters that still feels like the same story. And, uh, And I love the fact that the first thing that my head is doing is just building the problems in the same way that when I was writing the Graveyard Book, I had a place and I had a set of problems which were I want to do this as short stories set about two years apart and there need to be about eight of them and it still has to amount to a novel at the end. You have to get to the end and go this was a novel even though you were reading it and it felt like short stories on the way. And so you're starting out with, a, with a, the problem solving thing, which actually isn't, none of that is going to be the stuff that people remember. None of that is going to be the stuff. The stuff people will take away from it is the, you know, crying at the end of the book, cheering when something cool happens, falling in love with a character, being frustrated that two characters didn't end up together. That's what the people will care about. That's what they'll always remember. But that's weirdly, that's almost like the byproduct of the problem solving thing that you're doing in perhaps the same way that, you know, bombs that destroy lives wind up as a byproduct of somebody trying to figure out why atoms and electrons behave as they do.
0: I want to um, just introduce, because we have questions coming in from the audience, and so I wanna drop a couple of them in. Um, And here is one um, from Terry Pierce, which is uh, for for both of you. Um, And the question is for Carlo, what fiction or fictional worlds resonate best with your scientific concerns or passions? And then we will ask Neil what scientific ideas inspire your fiction most i'm i'm gonna say we should like take it as red that each other's work okay. <laughs> is, is inspiring so outside of that carlo can i turn to you first
1: um i don't have a direct answer because uh, um i think that uh, um uh it's one of the question, the point you mentioned at the beginning, I think that science has always been strongly influenced uh, by uh, by all the, the the cultural universe in which it lives, including philosophy, including its literature. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, I've been inspired in thinking at large about physical problems uh, uh, by, by reading literature all my life, I read an o- enormous amount of literature all my life, especially classics. I mean, the, my, I always say that my taste in literature is very boring. I like what everybody likes. <laughs> I like the kind of thing you study at school. Um, I like Dostoevsky and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and Gade. I love Shakespeare and Neil Gaiman. So the great is really the greatest. Um, it's not something specific that uh, that inspires me. Um, the complexity of reality, which is reflected uh, in literature, because that's what literature does. It tells stories. Uh, it's the beauty of the stories, all these things Neil talk about, but it's also, always also enlarging the way we think about things. Right? With, uh, you, you, read, you read Shakespeare, and then you think about human being differently than before, you have more, a more richness of things, of possibilities, of behavior, of relations, of connection, of of, of stuff. You've seen new things. Um, that has been inspiring me precisely because uh, um, because it, it, it shows that reality is rich and, and complex. Uh, and uh, if we stay with a worldview, uh, we're trapped there. We always want some some, some a little bit some else. So from Dante to Homer, there is always a little bit more that we add to um, to our view of uh, uh, of reality, and of course it's humans. I mean Neil is completely right. Is is uh, we always bring it back to to humans, but as a scientist at the same time, and I think this enriches the story. Humans are just a piece of this immense complexity, which is which is reality, which of course are particularly of interest to us, because we are one of them. <laughs> um, but the universe is not part of us, is we are part of the universe. And we are just floating in this immense reality as one of the little things around. And uh, I like think, think, thinking this this way. And there's a lot of literature that uh, feels that. Uh, we, we are We are part of this story. Neil, if I had to, if somebody asked me, when would you like to time travel? I always thought that uh, my answer would have been something like 20,000 years ago.
2: I would love, I'd love to be 20,000 years ago. And I also wonder a lot about how to communicate, not how to speak not a language thing, but the feeling that the people 20,000 years ago probably weren't, aren't seeing the same world that I'm seeing. And how how to exchange information, Even even if you magically gave us the same language, I suspect that we would be talking about, thinking about, perceiving, Different things and completely different worlds. Um, but yes, I, I, I think I'm especially here with my current stone obsession. Um, that's right, that's I, right. I've been thinking about that so much. Just, okay, here, um, you know, going up to the, um, there's a little stone circle on the hill, which, and I went up with an archaeologist the other day we're just sort of looking at the one standing stone, which is the one in the middle, which is oriented perfectly east-west. So on the solstice, it would have done something. And noticing that there was one, it had a sort of stone built into it on the east side. And I said, well, what? It looks like it's actually for something. And my archaeologist said, well, yes, that's where you'd put the animal or the baby or the child. And when the sun hits it, that's where you would cut their throat. And then there was a pause. Then she said, I don't know why I said that. That went very dark. And I thought, went very, very dark and feels terribly right. Um, But the idea of, you know, much like Alan Garner, um, that thing where you just feel like, okay, there, there are the bones the bones of the earth are sticking out here. Some of the bones of old time are here. And, and it's not necessarily the way that we would have wanted it to be. It's much Wonderful. more what it was. And we don't understand that. And we never really will.
1: Wonderful, yeah. I
0: think. Sorry, I said one thing.
1: Um, we are far more complex than what we think we are.
2: I was just going to say, in the in the the what scientific books, um, thirty something years ago, Terry Pratchett said to me, he said, Neil, what you have to understand is, as a writer of fiction, you will never get inspiration from fiction. Um, you've read all the fiction, you've seen the movies, you've seen the TV, that's not where you're going to go, ah, now I can tell a completely original story. He said, you'll find those in things like, you know, reading a book on how they fed Nelson's Navy, whatever. (sighs) That's suddenly where you'll go, oh, well, then there's a story, of course. And, And so for me, I've been a reader for the last thirty-something years of of anybody explaining stuff I don't understand to me, and that can be the the Oliver Sackses and more recently David Eagleman, those people who are going, you know, the brain is absolutely terra incognita, and um, we don't understand things. But what we what we know is this, um, and um, it can be the actual people whose job it is to try and explain science to people like me who go, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I love you and I like the way you say it. Um, and then there's also the the thing that I'm doing a lot right now, which is getting utterly obsessed with bad science. Um, and by bad science, I mean, I'm I'm reading things like, I've got a copy of the giant 12 volume uh, edition of Fraser's Golden Bough here. And I've got uh, Robert Graves' is The White Goddess. And I'm going, none of it's true. And even when it's true, none of it means what they thought it meant. And it's actually telling me more about what it was to be a middle-aged, white, important, moneyed person writing a book or writing about poetry. Um, but that doesn't mean there is no information there, and it doesn't mean the information is valueless. It means there's an awful lot to learn. It's just not what they thought they were telling you. And that fascinates me.
0: But I think it's interesting you you bring up the topic of, of bad science, Neil, Um, because I was going to ask Carlo. I think my senses, I was listening to the New York Times' daily podcast today about the development of vaccine against COVID, which is coming along incredibly quickly uh, as these things normally happen. But it seems to me as an observer, a non-scientific observer, that we are in quite a perilous moment for science and for the acceptance of scientific fact. There's a lot of discussion around this vaccine, whether people will take it at all. The anti-vax movement is growing and you write, there's an essay in this book about UNESCO and traditional medicine. So, I wonder what you can say, Carlo, to um, addressing this uh, abandonment, I want to say, surprising abandonment, um, in, in belief in, in scientific fact, as it can be ascertained.
1: Um, it's a difficult topic because it's a political topic. So... Uh, let me try to say something not obvious, two, two things. Uh, one is that, uh, uh, I, of course, we, we, everybody knows what you're talking about and this enormous amount of people that reject competence and, 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 and facts, simply for facts that we know, our knowledge, uh, in a way which is factually stupid because it's harming to themselves and everybody else. The question is uh, is posed, uh, ill-posed, because if they do so, they have a reason. And I think it's a political and economical reason. Most people who do that uh, are people who are de facto re- really under-favored in a society which was based on competence, com- competence and left people out. Focused on some weak people, but not on other weak people. So they have a reason which uh, it's then turned around is expressed in a completely wrong way. And I think if we address that reason, I mean, we are not in a perfect society. We're in a society in which an exaggerated amount of inequality in which a lot of people uh, in in many countries, uh, in many super rich countries, have a very poor life, a very miserable life. And it's these people who don't believe experts maybe they have something they're trying to say and I think that the the of course society can only work if there is a common body of accepted uh, truth which is debated discussed but then we work around this which can evolve of course can change can evolve but it's a but for this to happen you need to uh, People to come along with society. If people don't feel they're coming along with society, because they see a lot of rich people around—I mean, this rich intellectual like us—saying interesting and like things, but but they are having a bad life. Uh, why should they come along? Why should they buy the common story? Um, now I understand that the 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 alternative stories which they. Uh, by are silly and stupid de facto. I mean, and harming for everybody, including the people who follow these ideas. Uh, but just telling one another how they are wrong and telling them how they are wrong—it's to me the wrong, the wrong point. There is, there is inequality. There is injustice. There is, a, there is people unhappy in this society, and it doesn't matter how they express it. The point is that they are unhappy. And I think if, if the the part the part of society in power doesn't recognize that and doesn't address their needs uh the the breaking of the social conversation which we see around us is going to continue now of course there is a there's a lot the second point is that um, the second point is that you know if you, why people don't believe science because uh, I, I feel bad because all my life i've told everybody think with your own head um, now I'm, I'm, I'm past 60, I think I'm older, and I, I would like to tell people, no, don't think with own, your own head. First, study and learn, and then think with your own head, because uh, um, knowledge without uh, rebellion, is, uh, it, it just goes to death, but rebellion without knowledge, uh, it just goes to, danger, to, use, to, to, to silly dangers and goes nowhere.
0: That's a very interesting. It's a very interesting point. I wondered. I wonder, Neil, how much because i I think of your I think of your work as steeped in both knowledge and rebelliousness. Is that something that resonates with you? Can I,
1: can I uh, in, interject? Neil is a, is a quintessential combination of rebelliousness and knowledge. I mean, because it's a not only he he breaks. Uh, he says things that you're not supposed to say very often. Uh, but what he does, uh, and, and and the 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 incredible power, one of the powers that nourishes his stories is precisely his uh, sort of vast knowledge of what is in the in the history of human ideas, uh, which, which 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 emerge and, and 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 come out and is rearranged in his uh, in his own. So. So it's a quintessential combination of. Uh, deep knowledge of what the humankind conversation has produced and rearranging, redoing.
2: Thank you. Um, When I was 11 or 12, um, I I had a a lisp and was sent to an elocution teacher who bless her little um, heart did not actually teach elocution she taught me uh, you know wasn't she didn't do it as approach it as speech therapy she just decided to teach me how to talk and how to act and all of that kind of stuff Um, and I remember doing something for her a puck speech from Midsummer Night's Dream and when it was over she said Neil dear before you can be properly eccentric you have to know where the circle is. And I took that as a huge piece of adult wisdom. Um, I'm, well, I There's absolutely nothing wrong with being eccentric. Uh, there's nothing wrong with leaving the circle. There is nothing wrong with plunging out on your own and doing it your way. But it's always a good idea to know how to do it their way first and to know what the wisdom is and to know if you're breaking rules to have a reasonably good idea of what the rules are that you're breaking. Um, and I think that's always going to be true because that way we build, we break and we build. There's no, you know, there can't be creation without destroying something that went before or at least moving it around or rearranging it. Um, you know, from a from a, one of the things I, I'm always reminded of reading Carlo is that at the end of the day, death is just a rearrangement of atoms, that everything's still around. Um, in that beautiful Carl Sagan line, we are stardust. And we just get rearranged. You mentioned that
0: because we're, We are astonishingly, I have to say, the hour has flown by. We are coming to the end of our time, I'm dismayed to say. Um, But I think at the beginning, I want to come back to, Neil, you were talking about the final essay in Carlo's book, um, which brings us into the present that we're in, and in a sense, is about hope. And I want to ask you both, in this time that we're in, as we're moving into the darker days of the year, but spring is coming, what gives you both hope? What do you focus on and look for in your artistic and and scientific selves? Neil.
2: Actually, we were talking, you and I were talking about that essay before we began, before this this talk began. So let me just put a little context into that for those people who weren't listening to us before we started. Um, the, The final essay in Carlo's wonderful book was written a couple of months into the pandemic, and it's written from an Italian point of view, talking about, what is going on in the world, about the deaths, about what's happening, and then pulling back. And not pulling back in a way um, that feels like Carlo is minimizing the death or, or the disaster, but just moving further back, moving further away from the world, looking at things from a viewpoint of more time and more space and going, yes, but you know, they're people and and they will die. And this is an epidemic, it's a pandemic, and they they do end. Um, And life will go on. Um, And we're not going to be back where we began, but we will be somewhere else and we are people. Um, What gives me hope in all of this is the idea of community what gives me hope is people working together to build things rather than tear them down people working together to fix people doing things whether it's nurses whether it's people uh working on vaccines whether it's just people figuring out how to do their lives in a way that does no harm to other people while we get through this and it is hugely moving it makes me feel proud to be part of a a giant species of of people who are can make things and make things that weren't before. Um, I'm always reminded, and especially with my giant stone obsession, um, just that we are, we may may think of ourselves as as loners, we may think of ourselves as individuals, but at the end of the day, if you drop a solitary human with no clothes or tools or knowledge of Human history and the things that we've made into a place—you would probably wind up relatively soon with a dead human being. Um, what allows us to survive? What gives us a world with with books and artificial flickering candles and 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 weird ring lights and microphones and all of this is the knowledge and the enthusiasm and the desire to make things better or just to make things new of other human beings. And I love that we get to live in that world where everybody has contributed something to us being here and where we are. Thank you, Neil.
0: Carlo?
1: Um, essentially, what gives me hope is the same thing that uh, uh, Neil just mentioned. Um, I think that this uh, this uh, w- it's a dark winter we are going uh, into uh, right now. Uh, a lot of people are going to die, and uh, there the are tensions all over. Uh, plus, uh, global warming is coming; ecological catastrophe is coming. It's not it's, the future is not going to be easy. Uh, but first of all, uh, and, and, and that's somehow my my consideration. Precisely because we are facing all that, we see how precious is life, and uh, and we are we are happy to live this life in in, in its best. And second, and most importantly, what gives me hope is seeing so many young people. I mean, I, I'm old now, but so many young people that do think that a better world is possible, a better reality is possible. And uh, um, a world uh, in which the basic rule is, uh, um, let me do better than the others, let me have more money than the other, let my country be above the other, let my country be more powerful than the other, let my group be. It's not the only possible world. Uh, We, as, as, as as Neil said, Humankind has done everything that's done. We have this beautiful life because we collaborated. And this pandemic is such a common problem for humankind altogether, that it it's completely obvious that the solution can only be global, collaboration is needed. And I think a lot of young people are seeing that and are seeing that uh, what we want is not a, a world in which uh, uh, we are fighting to be the more powerful, but a world in which we're fighting to be the one who contribute best to everybody's advantage. and. When I'm optimistic, which is a couple of weeks, a couple of days a week, I hope that we're going in that direction.
0: Well, I think that's just a wonderful note to end on. I want to thank you both so much for a remarkable evening. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Carlo. Um, Thank you to 5 by 15 I'm going to also thank our wonderful audience out there. I wish I could see you, but I'm also glad, not wanting to be a Pollyanna, um, but we have Neil in the Isle of Skye. I am in London, England. Carlo is in London, Ontario, and we're all able still to come together in this way. I want to uh, commend to you, of course, Carlo's new book, There Are Places in the World Where Rules Are Less Important Than Kindness. It's published by Alan Lane and his new book, Helgoland, is coming in the spring. And two books from Neil, Pirate Stew, and there is also the compendious Neil Gaiman Reader, which is a marvelous tome, I have to say, for the devotee or someone who needs to be introduced to his work. So thank you both so much. Thank you, Five by 15. I'm Erica, and it's been wonderful being with you tonight. Good night all. Thank Thank you very much and hello to everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you
2: everybody.